You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. This is a podcast and a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question your default option, and get inspired to action for your own career. And thank you for giving me your time on this wonderful Wednesday. Happy hump day. And if you're listening that on a day that is not a Wednesday, no problem. That's the point of having a podcast. It's 100% on demand. This podcast is part of OMD Ventures. That is my platform with a mission to build utopian organizations by unlocking human potential. And this podcast is all part of making that mission come true. So if you want to check out more about the platform and what it stands for and all the other kind of media products I've created, check it out at omdventures.com or alternatively, oldmandan.com. I own both domains. As many of you, my dear listeners, know, OMD Ventures is a company that I started last year, and in the hopes of growing the platform further, I created a donations page at omdventures.com slash stakeholder. That's S-T-A-K-E holder. On the page, I list out all the various way, free ways you can support the platform, but if you wanted to provide a little extra help, I've included a donation option, and so this is a new feature I've created. And practically the way it works is, is that you can practically buy me a cup of coffee. And why a cup of coffee, you might wonder. Well, it's because the podcast started from me having a ton of coffees with very interesting people. And that's how I learned and dissected all these cool information. And I figured, well, instead of having you buy my guests a cup of coffee by taking them out and meeting them one-on-one, it's like I do it on the podcast already. So I figured, hey, why don't you help me out and uh, buy me a cup of coffee and think of it that way. It's like this... I'm the broker of this coffee and you're getting a chance to meet all these people and hear their stories. So practically that was the story behind the donation being a cup of coffee. And so, yeah, I would really appreciate it if you can help support the podcast in any way. And if you would like to donate, I'd be really happy for your donation. And so if you become a coffee donator, then I'll include you into a select group of individuals who can submit questions to me and I'll provide an exclusive report uh, exclusive recording of the questions I answer. I haven't decided yet if it'll be quarterly or monthly, but I think based on how the donations come about, it'll continue to, to evolve and develop. So yeah, check it out at omdventures.com slash stakeholders and just go to the omdventures.com page to just find the various cool stuff that I have and the links are all in the descriptions below. All right, cool. So Today's guest is David Cairns. He is the Vice President of Office Leasing at CBRE Canada and the co-founder of CBRE Forward. CBRE is a commercial real estate service company. And with my own limited experience of commercial real estate, David thankfully just creates a picture of the real estate value chain for me early in the podcast. So if you're confused like me, it's perfect. We kind of go through what the company does as well as what David specifically does as well. But prior to his successful real estate career, David was a professional poker player. And having been raised in having been raised by a single parent household with an entrepreneurial father, David really learned to be an independent competitor really early. And this transpired 
from being like a competitive skier when he was in school to then eventually becoming this competitive poker player where he learned where he earned I think it was more than two hundred thousand dollars while he was in university and so in our chat we explore the 16-hour daily grinds that people don't see on TV when they watch poker players on sports channels and we also talk about the emotional roller coaster that resembles like a venture capital career on steroids because you're practically just going through this huge volatile swing of ups and downs that people in kind of like startup investing would experience over a 10-year period but you're a poker player experiencing everything condensed in a one-year period and we also talk about how this particular experience, his journey, allowed David to really rise from entering the real estate world in an administrative position to becoming a successful VP in real estate and also reestablishing himself as an entrepreneur where he helped create CBRE Ford within the company as well. And so this was a super fun chat where we explore the various, I think, ins and outs of the poker industry and what it really means to be a poker player as well as the real estate world as well. And so I hope my chat with David really expands your perspectives and really has you question the default and inspires action in your life. So I really hope you enjoy our chat. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have David Cairns. Hey David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, and we are in a wonderfully swanky, nice boardroom in CBRE's office, where David here is the vice president of office leasing at, and he's also the co-founder of CBRE Forward. And so, David, for our audience members who are not familiar with the company CBRE, as well as what CBRE Forward specifically is, can Mm -hmm. you kind of walk us through what you guys do and also what VP of office leasing really is? Absolutely. Um, So CBRE is the largest commercial real estate services firm in the world. We are something like 70 or 80,000 employees and in more than 60 countries. We do anything that you could think of when it comes to commercial real estate services. So we, we operate in the spaces of office, industrial, retail, hotels, um, apartments, like any, any asset type that you could think of, we're there. Uh, and then we also do a lot of other things to help our clients, you know, whether it's project management, facilities management. We're a, a very, very strong and big conglomerate of real estate services that anyone, if, if you have any real estate need, we service it. Okay, so you have the full vertical that you provide services to. Yeah. And that includes like ownership of the buildings as well. Like, do you own all uh, We actually don't own, but we would manage on behalf of uh, people who own, Got companies it. who own, pension funds who own, institutions who own. Uh, so CBRE currently does not own anything. We're a publicly traded company. Uh, we are at the forefront of change in our industry for sure. We're making a lot of investments in technology. Um, we just bought a company called Floored which is a three-dimensional space planning and and sort of visualizing tool for companies. So really works well if you are a company like Amazon and you've got a development site that you're considering, but you don't know what it would be like, you know, to be in the building. So you can leverage a platform like Floored to be able to take a virtual tour of everything all the way down to different furniture settings. So it gets pretty specific. So that's just sort of one example of many examples uh, that, that we're, we're trying to stay ahead of. We also um, just launched a flexible office space platform called uh, HANA or HANA. I'm not sure how people say it, but um, how is it pronounced? HANA. I believe it's called HANA. It's, it's coming out of the U.S. 
um, and that's meant to uh, service flexible office space needs and um, uh, like events and, and different things like that. So it's uh, there's there's definitely a real shift in the office space landscape towards more flexible space, uh, space that has more amenities, uh, more experiences considered with the space. You know, like thinking more like a hotel than maybe a hands-off real estate service provider. So mm-hmm. CBRE is also uh, dipping their toe in the water in that as well. So that's CBRE as a company. And what I do is office leasing. So the way I like to describe what I do is I help companies from scale up all the way through to enterprise create dynamic office environments. So I either do that through helping them with transactions where I'm helping them negotiate you know, a lease, an expansion, a renewal, a sublease, uh, entering into a different city, anything that might be transactional related to their need for growth or shrinking, hopefully not shrinking, but also in the case of shrinking, we help out too, uh, on the transaction side. And then I kind of look at myself as a conduit to the, to the CBRE platform. So if the company needs help with um, workplace strategy before they actually start looking at sites to go and tour, or they need help with project management as they're going through the construction or the move process, or uh, their you know culture is going to be impacted by an office move and they need some help with change management. I'm kind of the conduit to connect them to the broader service platform that CBRE has to offer. So that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, I'm also the co-founder of CBRE Forward, which is a platform that showcases the stories of Canada's innovation ecosystem. So that has literally that focus of, of meeting and talking with the founders and the CEOs and the senior leaders of Canada's fastest growing companies and getting them to talk about, you know, what their challenges are, what their exciting opportunities are, where they see Canada's tech ecosystem going, how environment contributes to success, uh, things of this nature. So that's what the purpose of CBRE Forward is. Got it. And you you briefly touched upon how the future workplaces are changing to become more like co-working space oriented, more hoteling oriented, and less Mm -hmm. so much as, you know, we're going to commit to five-year leases. Mm -hmm. How has that impacted what you do as someone who's actually in office leasing and what's like the before after picture that you can kind of paint for us? So that's a great question. And there is no after to paint yet. Right. There's definitely a before. The and before that, and the current, I yeah, guess. Yeah, before and the current. Um, so um, the best way that I can describe the change is is twofold. One is that I think companies really need more from their real estate to be able to attract and retain people. Real estate has become either something that's going to work for you or against you in that regard. Whereas if you, you know, go back in time 20, 30 years, you just see these cube farms of like, you know, it felt like, uh, I don't know, not a great environment, right? Almost like a cell block or something like that. Um, I think that time has kind of come and gone and people see the value of real estate in terms of that attraction and retention. And also because people are so much more mobile, in their ability to perform their job. You know, like for me, I use my cell phone for probably about 90% of what I do. And I have team members that can help me um, with things that might, you know, need a computer. But but a, a good portion of what I do can be done literally from my handheld device. And many people are in the same boat. So if that's the case, what is the draw to actually come into the office? You know, what, what's the company doing to actually provide, you know, the types of different settings that people might want to have a collaborative meeting or quiet you know, thoughtful conversation with themselves inside their own head or, you know, there, there's so many different settings that that uh, trigger a different response in, in terms of the work and the output. And I think that that experience and that thoughtfulness behind real estate is something that's really 
changed. And, and I think that that's really awesome. And the people that I think are leading the charge or the companies that are leading the charge in that regard happen to be what we would call flexible workspace providers. Uh, companies like Convene, who I, I'm hugely a fan of Convene, um, and then other players in the space like Breather, WeWork, uh, Spaces, which is a, um, uh, a brand of Regis. All of these providers have been spending probably a lot more time on the experience side of real estate than perhaps the landlords who own the buildings and you know lease them and, and know the underlying principles of, of how to operate a great real estate company, but haven't necessarily thought about that experience piece as much. So that, that's been a, a, a big one. And then there's also been this demand for more flexible space. So companies often have been forced into lease terms that just were longer than what they would have probably wanted to agree to in the first place. And it's, it's pretty hard in, in really tight office markets like Toronto or Berlin or you know New York City to have a lot of leverage with landlords. They're going to want longer lease terms than you want. Um, but you know this rise of co-working or flexible space has created an opportunity for that to change. And that's, that's coming twofold. It's coming from like a macro level where you know these providers growing is signifying to the market that flexibility is important. And their ultimate expansion is also um, really giving more opportunities for companies to actually get the flexibility that they want. Uh, I think the one of the big things that we're seeing right now is, um, you know, right now the, the co-working providers that are out there um, typically are offering you a piece of a floor that's part of a broader floor plate where you're going to see a lot of different companies that are you're kind of coexisting with. You might have your own private space, but you're coexisting with them on the same floor. So that works for some companies, but when you get to a certain size or a certain scale, or if you're working on something that you know you might want a little bit more privacy for, that model doesn't really work very well. So the shift in flexible space that's happened lately has been towards privatization of flexible office space. So providers that are out there that are that are kind of at the forefront of doing this are probably no tell and breather. These these providers are leasing space anywhere between like 2,000 to maybe 30, 40, 50,000 square feet in some cases where they're building it out for the company, taking into account experience, like I mentioned, different settings that people might want to work in, whether it's a phone booth, whether it's a you know collaborative space, place to meditate, whatever it might be. They're taking that experience into the equation and providing flexible space. So that's that's really one of the main trends that's changing as it relates to office space these days. Got it. And so if I were to paint this kind of, if I were to cre- create a value chain of how things are progressing. So if one end on like the left side of the spectrum, there's me and I, I let's say my company grows and I have like 30 people and that'd be amazing. And so now I'm like, okay, now I want office space. And on the other end of the spectrum, like if I was to look on the right side, there's the landlord who, let's say it's for example, like Brookfield. Mm-hmm. And then there's the flexible workday provider like Breather or Convene or like WeWork. Mm-hmm. And then do you get slotted in between that, like between me and like the flexible work workspace provider, yeah. CBRE and, you know, David, who now listens to what the kind of office I want to create and the kind of ambience I want to have, the kind of culture I want to create, and then try to like match it up with what we could do. That's So thank you for actually bringing me back to, to your um, the, whole, the full part of your question. Um, so yeah, the answer is we would, um, we would work on your behalf in, in each of these cases. So me as a service provider to you, I'd be going out and trying to find you, you know, a bunch of different options. You know, maybe it's a sublease that has, you know, furniture and, and build out already in place. Then I would maybe find you a space that's direct with a landlord that you could use as a, as a comparison. And then we put in front of you maybe two or three different what we call flexible or co-working options for you to evaluate. And then on your behalf, I'm helping guide you through 
you know, what makes the most sense for your business needs, either from a cost, from a culture, from a privacy, you know, uh, there's a whole range of different factors that matter to different businesses. So it's evaluating which ones um, make the most sense, which which type of space offering makes the most sense. And I'd get involved in, in every one of those different types of conversations to negotiate on the client's behalf. The question will become over time, how much of the uh, conversations between, let's say, a flexible work provider and a customer are going to happen directly. Today, a lot of them are actually happening directly. And I think that, uh, at least in the current climate, that's a mistake that a company is making. Um, I, I find that often, you know, and WeWork's the best example of this, they've created an amazing brand. They've, they've just done such a great job of marketing their company. And as a result of that, I think that the companies end up looking at buying from WeWork in the same way that they look at like buying a t-shirt. They're like, oh, the t-shirt's $30, the office is $1,000, and they just often just take what has been presented to them in the first place. It's not to say that in every instance that there's tons of room to negotiate, but often there actually is. And often there's a more creative way of looking at, you know, getting in, getting connected to a, a co-working provider. And I, I think that companies really need to be a little bit more cognizant of that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons you could you could probably point to as to why they might go directly to the provider. One, it's that they market really well. Two, uh, you know, a lot of times people have had a bad experience with a salesperson or a broker in a real estate situation, and I totally get that. Um, but, you know, just like anything, sales brings a lot of people because there's a low barrier to entry. Uh, if you're working with someone that's not that great, maybe doesn't have your best interest in mind, it doesn't mean you shouldn't use somebody. It just means you should work a little bit harder to try to find the right person to work on your behalf. Perfect. Yeah. And we've been talking about real estate for a while, but for the guests who are not familiar with their background, before this real estate foray, you were a professional poker player. Yes. And so before we dive into how that weird transition happens, I want when we first met, um, you, you told me about how for the most part of your, I guess, childhood growing up, you were raised by your father, like it was a single parent um, household. Yeah. And... You mentioned about how you felt like you had to grow up faster than mm-hmm. other people. You got to see the grown-up world, the adult world, yeah. world faster. And so, growing up in Toronto, like what what was that like as a kid? Like how did you how did you really feel that? Like how did you notice that you were growing up faster than people around you? And did you feel the distance yeah. when you were growing up? Yeah. Uh, so it's a great question. Um, yeah. So so my dad raised my brother and I, um, which is obviously pretty atypical. Normally, you wouldn't see in a single parent situation the father raising the kids Uh, i'm eternally grateful to him for everything that he did for us and the fact that he took on that responsibility um i think a byproduct of that though was that he did have um a lot of uh career responsibilities and career obligations and i think by the time i got to be you know 13 years old or whatever the age was and i was a little bit more self-sustaining it became a little bit easier for him to be able to do you know things on his own you know and also maybe have a social life too right so as a result of you know that dynamic my dad kind of like being the sole care provider for us for like over a decade and having to balance uh you know work and his personal life uh at that time i started to end up spending either more time on my own with my brother or i was ending up in more adult situations like i might be going to a party or something that my dad was going to. Um, and in some cases, I 
probably shouldn't have been at that party, um, which is okay. I, I'm, I don't hold anything against my dad for that. Uh, I actually just kind of look back on it and think that it was incredibly valuable because what I got to do is spend time actually around a lot of senior executives. My dad was a senior real estate executive, and I just got to spend a lot of time around people that you know were really smart, were at the top of their game in their respective careers. And that I didn't really know at the time, but now I see how relevant that was to me being able to build rapport, trust, credibility with the type of people that I now call clients, because those people that I now call clients were very similar, a very similar archetype to the people that my dad was friends with. So that's one aspect of it. And then, you know, the time that I spent on my own uh, with my brother, I, I kind of acted almost like a guardian in some respects to him. And uh, we did a lot of things on our own and we got definitely into a lot of trouble along the way. Um, but I think that that experience too helped me grow up. Um, and then just some of the challenges that come from, uh, I guess, the, the divorced sort of family dynamic that I had. Um, a lot of those factors just led to me having to take on more adult responsibilities, I think, at an earlier age. So a lot of people could like maybe... I don't, some people might feel bad for themselves in one way or another because of some pain they might have experienced through through that kind of upbringing. I don't look at it that way at all because I'm eternally grateful, like I said, to the upbringing that I got from my father. I'm so happy with who I am today. So if I'm happy with who I am to, today, you know, a lot of that came from how I was raised. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. And I, I don't really overanalyze any one situation where I might have experienced pain or whatever whatever the case may be um, I'm, I'm just very happy with how I grew up as a result of that uh, and then that led me to poker mm-hmm. um, and poker man that got me to grow up like a lot <laughs> so and so, so when is there is there like a specific kind of moment that you kind of reminisce back on where you know you're you're growing up and you just feel as you're going through this experience, I, just, I would say more rarer than the traditional kind of experience where you're forced to kind of grow up earlier, be more independent, take care of yourself, where you like felt like you, you had like a mindset shift from maybe like a majority of your friends where you might have felt like, hmm, why, why are people not all like this? Why don't they think like me? Um, as, I, as I kind of give you some time to think about it, like, I ask because I, when I immigrated, so I was born in South Korea, I immigrated to Hong Kong. And when I moved there, I didn't speak Chinese. I didn't speak English, but I went to a British uh, elementary school and I had to live apart from uh, my mother for a while because of some um, family situations. And, but that was a very difficult time, but that because of that, I had to, to learn to be extremely independent. And I never understood why I was so independent and so obsessed with being um, very self self sufficient, mm-hmm. and as I look back, I'm like I think that probably was a very big thing where that moment where I didn't speak the language, I was getting bullied by people and from another country. I didn't have my mother, and that kind of translated into this idea of I always have to, I always have to be on my own and having to be very self reliant and self sufficient. So I'm wondering for you as you were growing up, if there was some moment when that kind of like formulated so it's funny you're making me think of it like a little bit of a tangent to your question i'll try to preface it um so when i was growing up i think i really i was i was quite confused at different points um you know my mom came back in and out of my life um at different points 
And that was really hard for me, I think, when I was especially young, like, you know, between 9 to 11 and stuff like that. And I was always a bit of a class clown in, in school, looking for attention. And I really think I wanted a place to fit in um, because I didn't always feel safe at home, right? Um, just given, you know, the dynamic that I kind of grew up with, with my mom coming in and out and, and my dad having a career and, and um, you know, having different nannies that were taking care of us and stuff as a result of my dad needing the support. Um, but anyway, in, in I think, grade 11, I, I, I used to be a bit of a bully, actually. And I really just did it to fit in. And I think I did it also as a way of outwardly getting my pain off my chest. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But it it really didn't ever feel right to me. But when you're a young kid, you know, you don't really analyze everything that's going on as it's happening. But I was in a class once and I was making fun of somebody in the class and someone stood up for that kid that I was making fun of and basically just said to me, man, like you are like, such a jerk like what the hell is wrong with you why why do you do this on a daily and weekly basis like it's not it's just not a way to be and he did this in front of everyone in the class and it really struck me like it just made me realize like wow i'm not acting in accordance with my values i'm not acting in accordance with who i am i'm not a bully like it's not who i am i'm actually a very caring and kind person um and i i immediately kind of transitioned the way that I was treating people and uh, to me that's that's sort of a like just one of the crowning moments for me Um, but you you know you're talking about I mentioned that I'm very independent and I had to grow up early Um, I think all of these experiences I can't really point to one but like all of them led me down this entrepreneurial path of poker do you know what I mean the good and the bad you know like um, I, I, I sort of was uh, on the on the sort of like arguably negative side, like I had some addictive behavioral tendencies. I liked action. I was competitive. Uh, you know, I was a competitive ski racer growing up and I really loved individual competition and I loved to win. And, like you know, I had that like kind of desire for like a rush. So that was like both good and bad. Um, and then, um, you know, I think that a lot of people wouldn't have invested their time into something that really didn't have a very clear outcome. You know what I mean? Like whether I was going to succeed or fail at that was very much up in the air. Um, And I did experience quite a bit of ridicule in one way or another, whether it's from a family member or a friend, like, oh, you play poker, you know, like you, you you can just imagine how many different negative connotations people would have for something like that. And I think that entrepreneurs face that a lot of the time, too, right? somebody is you know telling them they can't do something or that their idea is stupid or, or whatever the case may be so i just think like all those early experiences that allowed me to grow up and also you know watch successful people do what they do all those things together led me down that kind of entrepreneurial path at a much younger age and you know i don't know where you're going next with the conversation but you and i talked in the first time that we met about how when i was like 21 and i was getting out of um university I knew that I wanted to play poker and luckily I had the ability to sustain myself to do that because I had made a lot of money from that, you know, while I was in university. But I had this level of certainty around what I was doing at that time. And I was 21 at the time. I'm now 32. I have never gotten that certainty back to that same level. You know what I mean? Like I have a lot of certainty around what I do today, but nothing close to when I left university and knew that I wanted to compete at poker for, you know, an undetermined amount of time. But so, yeah. Uh, continuing on that topic, though, do, do you feel that 
you don't feel that certainty anymore because of whether like do you think it's an opportunity thing where you just haven't found something that drives that or do you feel that it's um rather that from the life that you've led where you've experienced more and more like as a 21 year old your your world would be i would imagine much smaller than the 32 year old of you, who you are now oh, yeah, where your sure. life is completely different so then it kind of goes along with like a very famous saying of like you know the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and so i'm wondering do you feel that that's like a bigger part of why you don't have that kind of conviction anymore? um i definitely think part of it is that and that's definitely a path we can go down for this conversation i'm sure you could go down for a long time um i think part of why i had so much certainty at the time had to do with the fact that poker is a little bit more black and white than a career do you know what i mean like it's really just a question of like how far up that ladder of financial success you can get with poker but the game is the same you know you're kind of rinsing and repeating the same process over and over again whereas a career there's so many more like inputs to it you know like you could go to this company or that company and like start with this job and like go to that job and like like i just kind of like when i thought of leaving poker and getting into like a career it gave me like a ton of anxiety because i just had no idea where to start right but with poker um and I think kids could probably relate to this too, right? Like when you pick a sport that you're playing, the, the, there's more of a structure that's understood as to how you're going to interact with that sport or how you're going to interact with that game. And I think that that is part of what gave me the certainty is just knowing what to expect, um, generally speaking, from the game. Now, of course, there were many things that I did not expect, um, but they never really had to do with the game itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I think it's perfect that you touch upon that because um, I, I recently listened to an interview by David Epstein. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a sports and science writer. Um, he's, he wrote for Sports Illustrated, and he's also like an author as well. But he talked about how a lot of psychology tests and things like the 10,000-hour rule and like the work by like Anders Ericsson, they all focus on sports. And the flaw with that is that it's a fixed environment. There's only a set number of variables, like, like you talked about in poker, which is relatively black and white, like with sports as well. You know if you've won or not. And it's very clear. You've won and the game's over. You mm-hmm. go to the next game. and But careers and life, is, it's a wild environment where there's constantly different kinds of variables that cannot be controlled. And so because of that, it makes it very difficult to overlay psychological studies and sports over into career and, every, and everything else where the environment you're playing is completely different. And so the, when you were in university, like you went to McGill to study like policy yeah. and marketing and yeah. you learned poker there, like you discovered this passion, this conviction then. How did you come across it? Um, yeah, so in the mid-2000s, there was a bit of a boom in poker. Um, a guy named Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker in 2003. And he was the first person to have ever qualified uh, through an online poker website for a small amount of money into the main event at the World Series. So he, he like entered a satellite for $30 and ended up winning a $10,000 seat. He then went on to carry that $10,000 seat to a $2.5 million win in the most coveted bracelet in, in, the, in, the, in the poker world, which is the World Series of Poker main event. So you pair all that experience with his name, Chris Moneymaker. Is that his actual name? It's his actual name. And I've, and I've actually been in an elevator with his father. And I asked him, I said, how the hell is your name Moneymaker? And he said, well, actually, we're German. And uh, what, back, you know, going way many, many, many generations back, people's last names were their actual trade. And we were coin makers. 
So our name in German was Coinmaker, and when we moved to the United States, it just phonetically translated into Moneymaker. So that's why we have the name. And so I was like, man, you don't understand. Like, like I'm, I'm sure you're all like, you know, loving this. Your, your son wins the main event and his name Moneymaker. Like, what, what kind of more of a perfect story is that? Amateur player with the name Moneymaker. Um, so that just created this boom in poker. And I kind of was part of that that boom towards the end of high school. Uh, you know, a lot of it was playing home games with friends. I was the competitive, you know, future entrepreneurial type guy who was actually organizing these games and, you know, really wanted to play often. And my friends were kind of just sort of along for the ride part of the boom. So eventually they got bored of me and they didn't really want to run these games anymore. And then that's when I started to get into playing online because there just wasn't a consistent way for me to play and learn the game through my friends. And it just kind of dovetailed into going to university where I had way less boundaries and people monitoring me. (laughs) And that's kind of how I started playing. And what was the initial draw, or not even the initial draw, what what kept you constantly in it? Was there like something similar to like the thrill you had from skiing downhill that yeah. was there every time you won money? Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm relatively not not as familiar as you, but like I, I one of my guilty pleasures is to go to the casino when I'm back home in Vancouver because okay. I live relatively close to the River Rock Casino. Yeah, I love and the River Rock. I came 10th in the um, in the BC Poker Championships wow. out of, uh, in 2009, I think it was. Uh, it was actually like the most gut-wrenching day of my life. Yeah. I, there was like 800 players in the tournament and it came 10th. First was like 350 grand. Anyway, so the River Rock has a... It's a uh, anyway. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those places where you see all kinds of, you know, foreign money being played. And yeah. like I... My game of choice is blackjack. And so mm-hmm. I play blackjack for about two to four hours just sitting down. And mm-hmm. it's true, like the, the rush that you get from mm-hmm. winning, hitting it and... So I'm wondering, yeah, like was was that the constant pull that um, you got? So I think actually it has to do, it does have actually a, a connection to skiing. Uh, what I loved about skiing is the way that, that you, you can win the race. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, um, it's very pure in that sense. Like your time down that course is going to be what determines, and it's very black and white. So there's something about black and white that I really liked. And I think it was maybe just due to the fact that I had a lot of confusion in other areas of my life. And although what I've always said to people is I find poker to be the most honest thing that I've ever participated in. The most honest world. Not like when I'm playing the game. Poker players outside of the game are not always very honest. But the game itself allows for the most like raw form of honesty to happen, which is that you know that everyone is trying to deceive you to win. And how honest is that? That you know that they're trying to lie to you, right? Whereas in life, you're often actually trying to assess whether or not someone is being real with you. Whereas in poker, you know what someone's intentions are, right? Mm, the it's, default is lying. The default is lying. The default is try to beat you. And, and it creates this very honest environment. And it actually feels quite safe and secure to me. So that's actually part of it. I think I, I got pulled to the, the, the black and white aspects of it because I kind of needed that in my life with a lot of the confusion that I had going on elsewhere. Um, and then it's just the fact that, that you can win uh, and you can beat everybody. And I, I just was always captivated by that, just kind of to the skiing example. Um, so I actually didn't play as much cash games in poker where you can kind of come and go. You, you come and you sit down with 100 bucks or 10,000 bucks or whatever the buy-in is, and you can win money and then leave and come and go as you please. I was never really as captivated by that. I was captivated by tournaments where everybody starts with the same number of chips and you're trying to win the event. So I, I, I just was enthralled with, with that. And, you know, when I was 21, 22, I I didn't care about money. Like, it was great that I was making money at it, but I just loved 
entering a poker tournament. You know what I mean? It didn't matter whether the tournament was $10 or $5,000. Like, I just wanted to win the tournament. Eventually, as time went on, I started to lose some of that passion for the game. Um, but that, but at that time, like I mentioned to you, when all my friends were, you know, wondering, what am I going to do when I get out of university? Like, you know, am I going to go work at Deloitte or am I going to go work, you know, here or there? Luckily, I was, uh, well, I don't say luckily, but I happened to be around a group of really smart people. So their choices were like, yeah, am I going to go work at Deloitte or CIBC or whatever? But they were all really, I think, quite confused by it all and thinking like, I don't know if this is the right path for me, right? Like, I got the opportunity to get to know myself so much better over the course of like three or four years as a result of this sort of non-traditional path that I took. And I learned like incredible lessons about entrepreneurship, highs and lows of all that. I put myself in some personal danger in some ways that I won't get into over this podcast, (laughs) maybe offline. Um, But all of these experiences that I had, um, I think matured me to a much greater extent by the time I was about 25 and I got into the real estate industry. And I've been pretty successful at it. And I do think that that's part of the reason why I've had success in, in a relatively short amount of time is, is sort of that non-traditional background. Mm-hmm. And I, I am a huge fan of people with non-traditional backgrounds. And it's, it is one of the principles that I have where I believe that you have to explore. And there's, it's kind of more of the preferred route, in my opinion, for to, to actually get to know who you are better. Mm-hmm. And so when you were 21, you coming out of university, I think you, you said how I think you had around like you've earned about $200,000 worth of winnings yeah. from playing poker. And so that's a sizable amount of money mm-hmm. for someone just coming out of university. And but still to make the decision like you, you might have had conviction yourself saying, you know, what? yeah, I've earned $200,000. I'm probably pretty good at it. I'm going to go full time at it. What was the response like from like your father and your friends and everyone around you? Yeah, great question. Um, So my dad and I struggled a little bit more throughout my university career with poker. Um, I think I mentioned to you in our first meeting, I I wasn't the type of poker player that was very methodical with bankroll management. I was always kind of trying to play in the highest buy-in games that I could with whatever available resources I had. Now, that wasn't very smart of me. Uh, It it led to me going broke many, many times over the years, um, over the first few years of university. But what I did get out of it was uh, I got to I got to learn how to play in higher pressure situations with players that were a lot better than me. And I knew that that was really the only way for me to go about it and that eventually I would break through and have success. But I wouldn't be able to know how or when like it wouldn't be incremental. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be like I started two years ago with $50 in a poker account. And then two years later, I had 200000 I had a feeling it would be more meteoric. And that is what it was for me. I, I had uh a couple of different encounters where I made a lot of money. Like there was one uh, period where I, a couple days in a row, I made like 60,000. And then uh, my friend and I ended up winning a poker tournament with more than 8,000 players in it for uh, 220,000 US, which at the time was like, I don't know, 260, 270. So like I was shooting kind of for like, whales or whatever if that's if it's like his sales analogy you know like you instead of like going for a small medium-sized business i was going to try and get like amazon to be my client or whatever um so i think that that approach led to a little bit less of a you know i wasn't i wasn't stable-minded about if my dad would have been listening to a 20 year old kid talking about the way that he was playing poker he probably would have thought this kid's not very methodical about what he's doing right now right and then it was of course interfering with my studies so um it was really more as I was evolving and getting to the point where I had become successful with poker that I struggled with my family. Um, my friends, uh, the ones that were closest to me, 
they liked me for other reasons, right? Like they weren't, you know, poker was a side of me. And I think probably it was an inhibitor because I was so obsessed with it at certain points to a friendship. But I was pretty fortunate that people were, were you know, accepting of what I was doing. Uh, by the time that I got into poker professionally, I'd been a lot more methodical about it. I ended up getting a financial backer who uh, protected me basically from any financial risk. I was, I was actually putting my money to the sidelines, playing with his money. And the reason that I did that is um, I knew that poker wasn't going to be the path that I wanted to take into my late you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. I, just, I, I was fortunately self-aware enough to know that even if I was successful at poker, uh, even if I was financially successful at poker, I probably wouldn't be happy. And I knew that I would have to like sit at the table and earn every dollar just like I had to earn the last one. And I thought, like, I don't want to be 50 and, like, you know, have to be sitting at a poker table grinding it out. I'd, I'd love to have a team maybe that's working with me. And I'm, I'm making money by potentially adding value to other people who are in turn, you know, in exchange. Like, I'm making some money through through them being a part of my team or something like that. That was sort of the, the mind frame that I had. So I ended up taking an investor so that I could go and play in the highest buy-in tournaments that you could find basically around the world, both live and online. That's why I did it. I didn't need it uh, to play online. I could have sustained making a living, you know, probably depending on the year, I could have made something like 70, 80 to as much as 200 grand a year just playing online poker. But that wasn't the path that I wanted to take. So to just go back to to circle up on your question, you know, what did people think about it? It was probably a little bit more challenging for me while I was coming up because I didn't do it in a very methodical way. But by the time I had achieved success and then I went out and got someone to sort of secure my risk at that point, I think people were realizing that I was doing it in a, in a more methodical way than the way I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this this idea of so I, I never knew about this until I watched, I think, like a documentary of um, Daniel Negrano, who talked about like, I think this I think it was a side comment of how some poker players will I guess like bankroll like fund other yeah. upcoming poker players as yeah. just like how some hedge fund managers will help other small hedge funds grow. Yeah. And is that is that a common practice in in the industry? And is that what young you know young talent like young poker players look for, where they want that kind of financial safety net and someone who can maybe mentor them or just give them the financial support to continue playing the game? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know a lot about it in the contemporary sense, like I.e. today, because it's been a while since. I was in the game, um, but at the time that I was in the game, backing, it's called backing, that's the sort of colloquial term for it, um, it was everywhere. Um, so if I can go back to the history of the game and how it became, how there was this boom, uh, when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker, it did kick off this boom. A lot of it ended up finding its way to online poker. And essentially, so many people that had very limited knowledge or ability or skills were, were playing for you know more money than they should have been. And it works like a capitalist economy, like all of the money just kind of rose to the top, right? Like, you know, the, the, the players that had no shot that were depositing 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks, losing it, losing it, losing it, losing it, went up to the next level, you know, where the players were a little bit better and those players took it from that player and so on and so on and so on until it got literally to the top of the game, right? And those players that were at the top of the game at that time were making money hand over fist, because there was a massive knowledge gap. Even at those levels, there was still an incredible knowledge gap between you know, the, the good players in a game and the bad players in a game. Uh, so at that time, it created this environment where um, you know, there, there was just a lot of froth where someone who was playing in the high stakes cash games in the world, like, one of, like my backer, uh, it made it very easy for them to go and back poker players for tournaments because 
you know, they were potentially uh, the guy that I was backing or was backing me. He was a multi multimillionaire at 23 years old. Like, you know, he's, he's I don't know what he's, he actually had, but he probably had somewhere between five to eight million dollars in cash. Right. And he was consistently making money playing cash games at the time. So for him, like he's like, OK, I'll back five players, you know, maybe overall in a given year, I might lose a few hundred grand. I might make a few hundred grand. You know, maybe I'll hit a big if one of them wins the main event of the World Series of Poker. But that that swing of 200 up, 200 down didn't really matter to that player, right? Because they were one of the best in the world and they were making money hand over fist. But as time went on, just like technology impacts other industries, um, online, the, the the training ground that became possible online really changed the game. So like, you know, people started to, to create websites that were for training, you know, where they were doing instructional videos and content and like books. Like there was just so much information that started to flood its way online, you know, forums where people are exchanging information skype study groups like all of these things made the game harder over time which ultimately led to a more challenging environment which led to less money available for backing that was at least what was going on by the time i had left the game backing is definitely still a thing but i think that because the poker economy is kind of like like sort of leveled out and for lack of a better word um, I think that there's just probably like the guys who are doing it are more methodical about it. They're not just like handing money to somebody that they don't really know if they have that much ability. You know, back then players, uh, my, my backer wasn't really coaching me. I would imagine most backers today are probably coaching their players. Like he just didn't really care. He, he, you know, like I said, 200 up, 200 down didn't, didn't really matter to him. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think today it's probably a more methodical and uh, system systemized environment or whatever, for lack of a better word. Gotcha. And so then, if, if you could kind of indulge me on how, so we, you've kind of briefly touched upon what a cash game is, and that didn't excite you. What is a, then how does a tournament work? You, t- you said there's 8,000 people, and then there's usually, you know, at the end is a winner. And I've watched a bit of poker, and when I watch it, they usually only just show the final table, mm-hmm. where it's just seven people. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing then when you have 8,000, it's just a bunch of tables out there, and is it played over, like, number of days like how how does it yeah. actually work yeah so you're bringing up a great point um watching poker on tv can often be extremely misleading you know like you you see these massive sums of money and these seven people sitting around the table and you just have no concept of what it took to actually get there it's incredibly difficult um you'll you know i think i can't remember my stats i think i you know, my the, the times that i would win a tournament were something like one and a half or two percent of the time maybe like one and a half percent of the time so every time i entered a tournament the amount of times i would actually win it is like almost like one in a hundred do you know what i mean um and the amount of times that i would cash in the tournament like make the bottom end of the pay scale which is usually around somewhere between 10 to 20 percent of the field depending on the tournament and the tournament directors and whoever's running it or the online site that's running it Uh, but in that regard i was probably cashing between 15 to 17 percent of the time um, what I thought was an impressive stat for me was that uh, when I cashed, I made the final table one in three times. And when I made the final table, I came in the top three one in three times. Wow. So those stats are good. And those stats are very important because if you don't have stats like that, you're not going to make money. Because most of the time you enter a tournament to the point you made earlier, there's, you know, uh, there could be 500 people in it, there could be 200 people in it, there could be 8,000 people in it. You know, it's always varied depending on whether it, depending on, um, you know, whether it's a live event or an online event or uh, the size of the buy-in. There's, there's so many factors that lead to a different field size. 
Um, but either way, you know, most of the time you enter that tournament, call it 85% of the time, roughly 85 or 80% of the time, you're going to lose your buy-in, right? And you won't even come close to making it to the final table. So what you see on TV is literally like the top point whatever percent of the field. Um, so that's just, that's literally the hardest part to get to and the part that you don't get to very often. Hmm. And so then as, when you first start out, there's like 800, let's say, in the tournament. And so there's maybe like seven people in your table and there's a, a bunch of tables, all the seven people. Do so you have to, is it like kind of a overall kind of step progression where there's one winner per table and then all those people get aggregated to a next round of tables like that? So that is called a shootout. And I love that format. It's such a fun format uh, where you, you have to win your table to advance. And then you get brought to a table where you're, yeah, you're, you're there with like eight other winners or whatever. That's a particular format. It's not the most common form. Uh, a normal tournament, you are going to have the, the tournament director or the online site through an algorithm balancing the tables. So as a player is eliminated, they fill the seat and so on and so on. Uh, there are points, there are inflection points in the tournament where there actually aren't enough, enough players to fill the seats. So like, you know, you could be down to like, let's call it four tables and there's like 30 people left and you need 27 to make three even tables of nine. So in that case, you'd have four shorthanded tables that are in play. Um, so that's like, there's so many interesting nuances to tournament poker in terms of inflection points. And, um, you know, this is a completely different conversation, but, you know, the strategy that's involved in deciding like how to make decisions with the stacks that you have, like, the stack that you have in front of you versus the stacks that your opponent has in front of you, in front of them. Um, and, and then the various points at which you are in the tournament, right? Like, are you really early on where it doesn't really matter too much if you bust, like you're very far away from money? Are you on the bubble where, you know, you're about to make money, but you're you're not necessarily there yet? You know, there you need to be a little bit more conservative if you have a short amount of chips or be really, really aggressive if you have a lot of chips because you can put pressure on people that don't want to bust. You know, on the bubble of the final table, maybe someone doesn't want to bust. There might be three players that are playing for the win, four players that are trying to play for the top three and a couple that are just literally not wanting to bust before the final table. Like, you know, there's all these nuances to deciding how you play against a person depending on all that. Um, but yeah, there's there's just an incredible number of nuances to to all of it. But to go back to your question, uh, yeah, it would be very misleading to just put on the TV and look at those seven players and you know not have a lot of backstory as to how they got there. And and it seems like you need a lot of mental endurance and physical endurance to withstand even a single tournament. And you talked about your percentage rates and you know when you're when you're hot, you it seems like you had you were able to get into flow. You were you had that momentum to take it to the end. But to get to that point, you needed to play. I'm guessing like hundreds of tournaments. Oh, yeah. And so this goes kind of ties back again to the media perception of, okay, so I'm, I'm seeing all these millionaire poker players. I'm just going to imagine that they're always in Vegas partying it up and then they're like, ah, I'll just play a tournament and then win it and cash in and leave. But what, what, what is the reality actually? Like, what was it like in like a year? Like, are you just constantly grinding out all over the world? It's in tournaments and not yeah. sleeping. Yeah, no. So it's definitely a grind. I mean, one of my, one of my biggest um, regrets is that I didn't travel enough to all the stops when I was young. I was actually just a bit insecure uh, at the time to go to like, you know, Australia or wherever else, like without maybe having a friend who wanted to tag along with me. And a lot of my poker friends um, didn't have a backer, so they couldn't very easily just go play a 10K buy-in tournament in Australia, right? Uh, they were mostly playing online with their own bankrolls. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot your question a little bit. If you could just maybe. Yeah. So the question was just around whether, like, what is the lifestyle actually like? Yeah. What was actually yeah. like? Okay. Um, so yeah, it's really very much a grind. There's no question about it. You are. I was playing at the pinnacle of playing. I was I was probably six days a week. You know, most of the time playing online. If I wasn't actually traveling to a stop that I was planning for in advance. Or in the summer, we used to live in Vegas and we'd play the World Series of Poker because for seven weeks in a row, they just had tournaments every day. Uh, so other than that sort of seven, eight week period, you'd just be like deciding which stops around the world you wanted to go to and play. But aside from that, you're playing online. Um, so, you know, most days would be sitting at your computer in your room, you know, having lost, you know, on a Sunday, like Sundays were my biggest days for me. I had, I used to have eight to $10,000 worth of buy-ins on a Sunday online. So I had to make eight to ten thousand just to break even on a Sunday, right? And that's with your backers' money. Uh, yeah, that in that case it would have been with my backers' money. Yeah. Um, so it, like I can't really even describe to you how much of a grind it is, and I can't also describe to you how much of a misconception it might be if you see some guy that you think is like, you know, a multi-millionaire like gangster. He's probably not. You know, um, most of these people are backed. Most of these people are, are in what's called makeup, which is money owed to a backer from previous losses. So, you know, you might see a player win a tournament for a million dollars, but maybe they had 400, 500,000 in makeup. Do you know what I mean? So they right. win that event. They immediately have to pay back that full, uh, 500 and then they split profits with the backer 50, 50. So I, I would say that, you know, a competent, good, tournament player that plays both online and live is probably not making much more than like a few hundred grand like two to three hundred grand a year and then you know it comes with it's not like the job that you know i have here like even though i'm 100 percent commissioned um the volatility of poker is massive like you could you could go on a, a crazy unpredictable downswing you know what i mean uh, then that could affect your mental state and you could you could make poor decisions from there and continue your downswing. So like you really have to be of stable mind to do it. And a lot of the people that are doing it are young people that are not necessarily of stable mind, but that, you know, have intelligence, ability and drive and all that. And, you know, they caught a good run for a while, but eventually the game kind of beats them down. You know, like it's just a it's a really tough game to stand the test of time. In. And there are people that do it. And I fucking tip my hat to them. Because I don't even really understand how you could you could you know make a life out of poker, uh, just just because of how tough it is. It's just so tough. And for you, when you decided to leave the game at 25, you talked about how you know the poker world is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an influx of information, and so the edge that a lot of the existing incumbents had was disappearing. And so you got out of the scene. But what was that decision to get out? Like you told yourself that you would eventually leave, but to actually commit to it and having been in one kind of world like being like an athlete and entrepreneur of sorts for about four years and then now coming to this the wild environment what was that process like for you well it definitely didn't happen overnight um you know i i kind of like the reason i got out of the game was twofold one you made some points already that um the game was changing a lot the u.s government indicted uh, poker stars in full tilt for tax evasion money laundering wire fraud and a laundry list of different uh offenses and that consequently shut out the u.s from playing online poker so so that had a real like effect on the games and that was a tangible reason that i started to, to sort of peel back from it just because it was harder to 
make money from it. A lot of the bad players were coming from the U.S. or the players that we would refer to as fish um, were fun players. That's a new term, actually, since I was playing poker. We used to call them fish. Now they call them fun players. Okay, I thought it was called patsies. Yeah, well, they don't, want, they don't actually want to say something negative about that player. They call them a fun player so that they want to hopefully come back because if you're ridiculing the people that you're making money from, that's a pretty stupid counterintuitive thing to do. Um, anyway, um, so that was a tangible reason. But the main reason really for me was just that like the game was just emotionally and physically wearing me down. You know, like I'm now 170 pounds and a pretty slender man. Um, I was probably like 200 pounds at the time and just really unhealthy, you know, like smoking, drinking, eating bad food, sitting at a, at a desk for 16 hours a day. You know, and then you, you layer on top of that all the stress that comes from the ups and downs, financially speaking, and the fact that I was playing the game at hours that none of my friends were even available to hang out with me. So, like, they would be working during the day, like, 9 to 5. I'd be starting at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon playing till night. And then weekends were my biggest days because that's when most amateur players were playing online. You know, so eventually all that stuff just started to wear on me. Like, it was, it was having an emotional toll on me. Um, so I just decided, like, you know, I, I'm almost grateful that this this sort of stuff with the U.S. happened because who knows whether I would have quit at that time. And I really did need to quit. I didn't need to quit for financial reasons. I I'd actually done well financially, but emotionally I was not doing well. So I kind of peeled back and um, still didn't really get a job because I had a lot of money. And that was almost a curse at the time that I had this money and I didn't need I didn't have anything driving me to go do something different. Um, I actually then did take a job, uh, like a entry level sales position at a company called career builder, which is like, I don't know what they're doing these days, but they were a competitor of like monster and indeed, um, I didn't really align with that opportunity. And after about six months, I quit the job. Um, it was kind of funny. My dad actually quit his first job and I remember quitting that job. My dad was away overseas and I remember being kind of like, you know, worried to tell him that I had quit after such a short amount of time you know leaving from poker and I, I was just worried what he would think of me um he he luckily didn't have any judgment for me about it um but uh I then quit and then I actually even went back after that to play at the world series of poker that summer and actually it was crazy I remember uh I I tallied up about fifty thousand dollars worth of buy-ins that I wanted to play and I sold fifty percent of that action at about 1.3 to 1 markup so for every dollar that I sold to somebody, they gave me a dollar thirty cents back, uh, which was which was nice. Um, and I, I remember I just decided that morning I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the World Series. I made like ten phone calls and I sold the action like in that day. Wow! And uh, then I went down and played. Um, didn't really have a successful summer. Um, and then I came back and I kind of like event, you know, like I, I'm, I'm saying all these things to show what a process it kind of took. You know, I, I took a job that didn't align with me got back into poker kind of like dipping my toe in the water and then finally after probably another four or five months of like coming back from that I had been through enough emotional change that I was ready to take on a career hmm. and that that process after that process you, you know, now you've been at CBRE for six and a half like seven, seven years. years seven years and you told me how when you first started you were like an admin assistant position, like you were making like $35,000 a year. Yeah. And from someone who had to, who was at, you know, like in a very like successful field where you were making tons of money, money was even an issue to now coming to a corporate world where you're doing like admin assistant work. You knew, you knew you were smart. You were like a, 
you know, I could totally, you know, try to understand or even empathize about how, you know, yeah, you know, you're smart, you are like a rock star, but to kind of do a job that would, you know, be like very easy for you to actually like fight the ego and like actually be humble about it. How how was that process for you to actually adjust to that? Um, yeah, it was one of the most challenging times in my life. Um, I'm very grateful that I got this year in what we call our sales training program or our research group to basically find myself a little bit. Because when I came into this environment, um, I like was having panic attacks. Like, you know, you, you talked about someone who like, was at the top of their game or whatever, which like, I wouldn't necessarily say I was like, I, w- I wasn't a top, top player. I, I on, in online poker at one point I was, uh, for, for a consistent period there, I was in the top hundred online players in the world, which is pretty good. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of online poker players. Um, but, um, I actually had tons of insecurity. Like I totally doubted myself like a ton and, um, I just needed time to actually get on my feet and, and learn how to interact in this kind of a setting which is literally the polar opposite of poker, right? Where like I was sort of a, like by myself a lot of the time or by or with a group of misfits <laughs> kind of thing uh, rather than being in a structured corporate environment where people are, you know, working for big companies. And like it was it was a really tough transition for me. Um, and I I'm not really I've had periods where I've been arrogant and it's all been rooted in insecurity when I've been arrogant. But in general, I'm actually a pretty humble person and I've always been pretty humble. So I, I didn't have uh, any qualms with starting out making 35 grand or anything like that. I didn't have any qualms with uh, doing administrative work for other people. Um, that I was like totally happy to do and I wanted to learn the business and just figure it all out. I actually just had more of, a, of an internal insecurity in, in terms of like whether I was making the right decision for myself, could I actually do the job that I was going to be tasked to do next? You know, all these things were kind of like in my mind a lot. And um, like I said, this job, it gave me the opportunity to learn the market a little bit slower and get to know a lot of the people that do the different functions that I mentioned at the start of this this uh, podcast. Like, you know, our company does an incredible number of things. So being able to be in this environment and learn from all these people and see where my skill sets would be best used while kind of getting my feet on the ground, which they had not been for the last five years, you know, that was a, a, an experience I needed and I'm really grateful that I got it. Hmm. Yeah. And was there, then was there like, as you're going through this journey and now you're in this corporate world and learning that about yourself, learning that about the environment was, it's still, a, I would say a vastly different environment from the very intense um, kind of feel that you were in before, like when you're playing poker and even the business of real estate alone, you know, it has the perception of being slower, being more, People, when, when they think about investing in real estate, they're like, oh, it's a much more stable, secure investment than, like, you know, equities. Mm-hmm. Now, that's obviously a debatable thing, but that's the perception that people have. Yeah. And so to be in this world, did you, what, what, what kind of, like, process did you have to kind of stick with it and, you know, not get bored by it? Like, was there some kind of inflection point where you kind of had an aha moment of, oh, this could work? Like, I could see myself here. Like, I, I could see myself doing this. It's, it's it may seem different but i could see myself doing this well i think i did actually have a background backbone for patience believe it or not so poker i did it for long enough that i had sustained a lot of ups and downs i had seen how much time it would actually take to experience success and i knew that like success 
can come in waves and it doesn't really happen all of us, you know, it might happen all of a sudden, then you might have like a, you know, a lull or something like that. So uh, I was ready for a lot of the up and down and waiting that I knew would come with this position. Um, so I think that that was actually a huge asset to me that I had gone through this poker experience before. Um, I also had, um, you know, a father who was in the real estate industry. And although I really could have given two shits about what he did when I was younger, I paid no attention to it. And if he wanted to talk to me about it, I'd tell him to shut up. Um, but I, I realized as I got into it that I did absorb a lot of the underlying kind of, I don't know, skills or aptitudes that were necessary to succeed just through just through my upbringing of, of learning from him and uh and learning from the people that i got the opportunity to spend time around that were you know his friends or his colleagues um so yeah i i I actually funny enough i look around and i see a lot of impatience from people who come from more traditional backgrounds than me ones that maybe well that had a lot less action a lot less up and down i knew what i was getting myself into and and it, it really felt like something that i could actually wrap my head around a lot more because in poker, I was winning and losing money on a regular basis. And, and you know, if, if you take the math from the, the math I gave you on cashing in poker tournaments, you know, roughly 80% of the time I was actually experiencing a loss. And like 3 4% of the time I was experiencing a gain that, that paid for my losses plus profit. So, you know, you really have to be like patient and have a lot of endurance and, and um, you know, be able to, to sustain pain to be able to actually do that over the course of two three four years like even doing it for two years is something that i don't think most people would have been able to do playing poker right so all those 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 things just made this actually kind of i don't want to say easy in a way that it sounds like arrogant or something but it i just had the backbone to do it i just had the i had the underlying skills to do it yeah no i, I could i can totally see what you're exactly saying and it's like as you're telling me that experience i'm imagining it's like you're it's like you you personally were a venture capital fund on steroids and you went through a 10-year fund in each year in essence because you're going you're going through such a huge wave of roller coaster rides and with your emotions and experiencing constant failure whereas a lot of people in the corporate who started out in the corporate world who were all very type a did well in school they might not really experience as much failure it might it's because it's such a very gradual process they won't be able to really handle that kind of emotion and that might lead to this impatience too Failure is like the best thing that could ever happen to a person. You know what I mean? And like, I think it's just knowing that. Um, so I was talking to a group of um, younger salespeople and interns earlier uh, this week, and I was telling them how I still experience to this day imposter syndrome, which is kind of crazy to think in a way. I've been doing my job for seven, eight years. I know what I'm doing. I know how to consult my clients, but the stakes just kind of get higher as you get more experience you get in front of you know more dynamic deals more you know really smart clients that maybe aren't necessarily startups that you know way more than them they might know as much as you you know so i just find that i'm always making mistakes i'm always experiencing fear and i'm always ready for failure (laughs) and i and i think that like knowing that and and having the the courage and the vulnerability to acknowledge the way that I feel and know that I'm I'm not I'm probably not going to lose it you know if I'm if I'm losing it I'm probably flat you know I'm I'm not really gaining new experience and or or moving on to something more dynamic more fun so mm-hmm. no, I think that that's kind of a perfect spot to kind of leave I think our conversation today and as we kind of wrap up a final question I kind of want to ask was so if you could imagine 
that uh, the twenty-year-old David and Miguel, who's getting the confidence and the conviction to be a full-time poker player. What do you think that David's emotional reaction would be to seeing where you are right now in this boardroom that we're doing this podcast? Oh, I don't. I think he might. Like, oh, I think he might cry. <laughs> you know, like um, he, that guy had a lot of potential. And he's a very good guy, but a very lost guy. Um, and I think he would be happy to know that he was going to turn out like me. Because <laughs> <laughs> it might not have been so clear at the time, mm-hmm. you know? No, that's perfect. And so um, was there anything today that uh, we didn't talk about you kind of wanted to uh, maybe brush upon or like leave our audience with? Um, well, you've told me that your audience is, you know, maybe not starting their career, but probably getting to that point in their career where um, they're questioning things. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say it's, they're a very curious bunch. And some are, I'd say people who are looking, who are questioning whether they should be doing what they're doing right now. And also just people who are already in careers they might actually enjoy, but also wondering, what do other people do? I think I'll go back to the story I told about how I was bullying somebody and I got called out for it and I wasn't, I wasn't aligned with my values. Right. I think that people focus often too much with their career on like what's in front of their face or what their, what their uh, experience allows them to maybe do. Right. Like, Oh, I I have an accounting degree, so I'm going to go be an accountant or whatever. The more important thing is to focus and get clear on, your values and the, the more clear you can get with your values I think the more fulfilled you will be in your life because there's there's always going to be aspects of any job that you do even one that you're really like well suited to which I think you know we can probably both agree this job I'm, I'm reasonably well suited to but there are, are times when it's hard or I, I don't enjoy parts of it but if you can get really clear on your values you know what they what they are for you you're going to be able to get through tougher situations or be able to experience the joys of situations more too. And you won't really actually define yourself so much by your job vocation specifically. And I think by that actually happening, you'll open up a, a better opportunity for yourself. You might you might start doing something for your work mm-hmm. that you didn't even think you were possible. Perfect. David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with me and my audience. It's honestly been really fun and Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous, who knows. But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform and the quick way to do that is to go to my website oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page i believe it's oldmandan.com stakeholder 
and the link is also down below and that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe follow to get more updates on the free content but at the same time also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm just think of it as i'm the service that's doing that for you so you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this is, isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you